G'day everybody, Matt Ellis with you for the latest edition of the Cricket Library podcast and today we have the absolute pleasure of talking to a legend of the game, Gregory Stephen Chappell. And the whole crowd rises now to Greg Chappell. 182 in his last test match innings. He made 108 in his first test match innings in Perth, 182 in his last test match innings at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Former Australian captain, one of the greatest players ever to wear the baggy green cap and to grace the cricket field on behalf of this country. Today, Greg shares with us the origins of his passion for cricket, breaking into the first-class arena, the influence of Sir Donald Bradman, a letter from his father that transformed the way he played cricket, his double hundred and big partnerships with his brother in New Zealand, his reflections on his time coaching in India, navigating playing in an era when he was balancing cricket, work and family, and finally, we get to hear about some of the great work Greg is doing through his foundation, the Chapel Foundation. It's time now to sit back, relax, and enjoy our chat with Gregory Stephen Chapel. It's a very warm welcome to the Cricket Library podcast. Greg Chapel, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Matt. Well, Greg, we like to start our podcast by finding out a little bit about the origins of your passion for cricket. You obviously had a very distinguished career, but we like to find a bit more about the origins of of your love of the game. If you could share a little bit about that with us. Well, the love of the game came from our father, really. We were born into a sporting family, mum's father was a very um, keen and uh, uh, talented sportsman. He represented South Australia at six different sports and played for Australia and capital Australia in the 1930s at cricket. So uh, we um, were pretty steep in you know, the genetic side of it. Was, uh, the inheritance was very good and I think the nurture was uh, equally good, if not better. Our father was a keen cricketer himself. He'd represented South Australia at baseball. He'd been in the state's cricket squad for a number of years without ever getting to uh, play a Sheffield Shield match. Um, he was 19 when the Second World War broke out. So there was some interruption to his sporting career. And when I look back on it, I think there was perhaps a bit of frustration that he hadn't uh, achieved his own goals at at cricket in particular and therefore he put a lot of energy and effort into the, the three of us and I don't remember a moment in my life where there wasn't cricket in some form. We had you know, bats in our hands from an early age. Balls were everywhere around the house. We played cricket in the summer. We played baseball in the winter. We played Aussie rules football. I played some basketball. Um, did gymnastics. Did um, you know, quite a few things that our own father encouraged us to do, but most of all, he you know he gave us some basic uh, introduction to the the game, and 
he was obviously a very good observer of the game because the information that he passed on to us was extremely good. So that's where it all started. And and you mentioned, um, sounds like you had a fairly well-rounded um, taste of uh, uh, other recreational activities. At, at what point did you uh, look, to pursuing cricket, when did you think uh, this is something uh, that that you could do really well? Yeah, I grew up obviously dreaming of playing cricket for Australia. Um, all of us, uh, not only in our family, but all of our mates who played cricket, all had that dream. I think it was largely a pipe dream. I don't know that I ever expected it to happen. But Ian's five years older than me, and uh, he was sort of the trailblazer from the sporting tent for me because um, I was, what was I, 13 when he first got selected to play cricket for South Australia. So I think that was a, a bit of a turning point that, well, if the bloke in the next bedroom can play for South Australia, maybe that's <laughs> something I can aspire to. And I was 16 when he got selected to play in his first test match. So I think that that was the point that I thought it was possible. Um, Ian had been off to England and played some Lancashire League cricket and, you know, that sounded pretty uh, pretty good. So, you know, I started thinking that, you know, those things um, were possible because of the example that was shown to me, as I say, from the bedroom next door. So uh, that was the point at which I thought, well, you know, if I work hard enough, maybe there's a chance that I can do that. Um, you know, Ian had had a reasonably distinguished schoolboy career. Um, he'd represented South Australia at baseball as well as cricket. By the time he was sort of 19, 20 years of age, he was selected in an Australian baseball team before he played cricket for Australia. So there was a pretty good example for me to, to follow. Um, you know, winter baseball was a winter sport in those days, so we could play cricket in the summer and baseball in the winter, so I was batting ball sports all year round, and I can remember when it came to the end of the cricket season, I couldn't wait to get the baseball bat in my hand, and by the end of the baseball season, I was ready for a game of cricket. So it was just throughout the year, we were catching, throwing, hitting uh, balls, um, you know, and, and every waking moment. As a youngster growing up in Adelaide, you know, we were outdoors. Um, yeah. You know, our backyard was a, a sports arena. We had a cricket pitch in the backyard. We we played, um, you know, we, we played baseball. We um, we had a we'd had a um, little golf course layout in the in the backyard. <laughs> so mainly putting. Yeah. You know, we put jam tins in the in the back lawn so we could have putting competitions. And when it got dark, we came inside and we played, you know, cricket matches in the hallway with miniature bat and marbles or uh, ping-pong balls and all sorts of things. And you know, Ian had bought a, a book called The Fireside Book of Baseball, which had a dice game of baseball in it. So oh, wow. in the winter months when we weren't playing outdoors, we were playing dice baseball indoors. So it was pretty heavily, we, you know, we were heavily immersed in, in sport, particularly those two sports, but I loved my Aussie rules football at school. I enjoyed my basketball. Um, you know, so we were doing something all day, every day, and as long as we could, um, we we were involved in some sort of sporting contest, and it was always a contest. 
you know, Dad insisted that whenever we played cricket, we played it seriously. He made sure we played with a hard ball from a from an early age. Didn't give us any pads and gloves to play <laughs> with. So uh, you know, the the theory behind that was if you learned to use the bat properly, you wouldn't need pads and gloves anyway. Yeah, yeah. And uh, learning to watch the ball as well, no doubt. Yeah, well, that was a big part of his... Um, you know, his training, um, uh, say, from a very early age. Even at the dinner table, if you wanted the pepper and salt, someone threw it to you. <laughs> so we were, we were catching from a very early age and we learned to watch the ball. Dad taught me to catch by standing behind me and I would have been three years of age, maybe younger. Wow. Um, he, he would throw a ball at the wall from behind me so I couldn't see it leave his hand. So I had to pick it up in, in the air as it came over my shoulder and then you know, catch it as it rebounded off the wall. So I don't know where he learned that trick, but um, it obviously worked from the point of view of making us watch the ball. Because mm. I think if I remember a conversation we had years ago, um, his view was that if he stood in front of us, we would look at him yep. and, you know, probably look at his face rather than watch the ball. Whereas if we took that out of it, then, you know, we would be looking at the wall to pick the ball up as soon as it came into view. So we were fiercely focused on, on the ball once it came into view. So I don't know if anyone else has ever done it, and I don't know whether there's ever been any studies on it, but I reckon that taught me to watch the ball. Wow, wow. And uh, breaking into first-class cricket, you come into the South Australian team, Les Favels, the captain there at South Australia at the time, uh, you make a couple of half centuries in your in your first game, a um, hundred in your first season, like your first hundred up up there against Queensland. W- what are your reflections uh, as a young man breaking into first class cricket? Yeah, it all happened reasonably quickly. I, I didn't play any club cricket other than in the school holidays because uh, we went to a school called Prince Alfred College in Adelaide, which well. Um, in in the day, uh, Prince Alfred College, St Peter's College and Adelaide Boys High School all played in the men's B-grade competition. So if you got in the first 11 at school, you were playing in the, the men's B-grade competition. So um, it was really strong cricket. I was 14, I think, when I, I broke into the first 11. And my first school game on the front oval at our, our school was against West Bowen's B-grade cricket team and in that team there were a couple of, in that West Torrens team there were a couple of former Sheffield Shield players, there were a couple of guys that had um, represented South Australia at baseball and there were guys that I knew of or you know, in some cases I knew them personally but um, one of the guys, the captain of that West Torrens B grade team was the, the current captain and coach of the South Australian baseball team, he played baseball and cricket against my father and against my older brother, and obviously they had annoyed him at some stage because <laughs> he came when I came into bat, and I was the only one in both teams that was wearing shorts. I don't know why, but my father wouldn't let me wear long trousers, um, or wouldn't buy long trousers. I don't know what it was, <laughs> but I was in shorts, which was embarrassing enough. Yeah, but I remember walking out to bat. I must have batted at six, and I walked out to bat, and this fellow Kingsley Wellington came and sat himself short leg 
and he got into me from the second I arrived at, at the creek. And he did me a huge favour because they had a fellow called Parry who was one of their opening bowlers. And he was playing B grade because he wasn't allowed to play A grade because his action was suspect. Oh, um, so Sir Donald Bradman was trying to cut out bowlers who threw it in A grade, but they were allowed to play in B grade. So there I was as a 14-year-old facing this bloke who ran in and threw him. <laughs> and he threw him quicker than Ian had ever thrown him at me in the backyard. <laughs> and I was nervous and, you know, a little bit concerned as to whether I was going to be able to cope. But luckily, this fellow started getting into me. And he took my mind off being worried about the ball. And I thought, well, if I've annoyed you enough by walking out of here, out here, if I stay here for a while, that might annoy you more. I don't remember how many I got. It wasn't a lot. I might have got to 20. Um, but it took some time to, to get them. And I was just determined that I wasn't getting out to annoy the Kingsley Wellington blokes. So, you know, I, when I finished school at um, 17, uh, so we finished in the December, I played three or four A-grade games for Glenelg Cricket Club at the end of that season, including a semi-final at Adelaide Oval. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got 50 in the semi-final. It didn't do anything extravagant in, in the other games. But then the next season, I started the, the season really well. Uh, Ian was away with the Australian team in South Africa. Yeah. And um, so there was one spot in the South Australian batting lineup, and I sort of hadn't, I don't think I'd set my target on replacing Ian in the side, but I just happened to start off um, with 280 in the first three innings of the, uh, of the next season. And one of those innings, one of those games was against East Torrens, which was captained by Les Favell, the South Australian captain. And he was a selector, and obviously saw enough in that to pick me in the first game to replace Ian in the in the batting lineup. So uh, our first game was at Adelaide Oval against Victoria, and as you said, I got um, two fifties, one of which was a not out fifty in the, in the first game, and that sort of settled me down. And um, and then about four games later, we went to Brisbane, and I got my first hundred. Um, which pretty much secured my, my spot when Ian came back for the next season. Uh, I was I was still able to keep my my place in the side. And does scoring a hundred? Uh, did you ever uh, read much into the numbers? Was a was scoring a hundred for you uh, a real feeling of accomplishing something pretty special in first class cricket at that stage? Yeah, look, a hundred in the backyard was a pretty good. <laughs> uh, performance, um, you know, I, I, it it was something that you know everyone knew that a hundred was uh, you know a sort of a, a success marker. You know, ninety nine, no one was ever going to remember how many ninety nines you got, but if you got to a hundred, that was going to be remembered. So I'd sort of learned, and I think I was twelve when I got my first competitive hundred in schoolboy cricket. Yep. And I can remember the exact oval and and uh, you know, the time and, and place of of when I did it. So obviously it's it's a memorable uh, milestone. And um, you know I always counted my own runs because often we didn't have scoreboards. Most of the grounds um, either didn't have scoreboards in schoolboy cricket or no one was manning them anyway. So um, 
I, I wanted to know how many runs I was, so I, I got into the habit of counting my own runs, which um, was, was a blessing because it meant that you, know, you didn't make a mistake in the you know, 40s or the 90s because you knew that I still had three more to get from the 50 or you know four more to get from the 100. Um, you know, I didn't want to do all that work and find out I'd got myself out at 96. You know, so yeah, I got into the habit of counting my runs. I did it all the way through my career, and you know, there were there were times at main ground, obviously, first uh, cricket and test cricket, there's a scoreboard, but I can remember three or four occasions in innings in, you know, test matches or first class games when the scoreboard was wrong. Oh, wow. And I knew it was wrong, and it, I didn't feel comfortable until they sorted it out. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it was just a habit I'd got into, but it, it probably helped me to concentrate, I think, because I just, I always knew how many runs I had. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fascinating. And um, you, you mentioned Don Bradman before. Really interested uh, to hear about Don Bradman's influence on on your career. You, you end up scoring more Test match runs than the great man, and he he had a conversation with you early on in your Shield career, and and helped you with a little technical aspect of your batting. Can you can you share a bit about that with us? Yeah. Um... It would have been my second season for South Australia. So, you know, I'd made 100 the, the previous season. Uh, I wasn't aware of it, but Donald Bradman had obviously been, you know, taking note of, um, you know, my career during schoolboy cricket because uh, apparently I found out later that he had spoken to my school coach, Chester Bennett, and um, had suggested that I needed to, you know, uh, widen my range. I was very much a leg side player as a youngster. I was I was 17 before I I got a growth spurt that um, you know turned me from a you know short ass into into someone with a bit of height. <laughs> you know, I was always the smallest kid in every class I was in. I was always the smallest and the youngest in any team that I was in. Um, so I was always up and in the backyard, obviously five years younger than, than he, and I was always up against older, bigger blokes. And um, and I'd I don't know whether someone had taught me to hold the bat in this way, but my top hand, the back of my top hand, faced the bowler, which is a very good grip for leg side play, but it's not a great grip for offside play. It's really hard to sort of work back against that grip. Yeah. So. Um, apparently Sir Donald had spoken to Chester Bennett and suggested that I change for a grip as a schoolboy. Uh, Chester had spoken to my father. Again, I wasn't aware of that. But Dad said, no, no, leave him alone. He's going fine. And so Chester didn't interfere. So I'd, I'd got to first-class cricket with this grip. I'd made runs with the grip, but, you know, 98% of my runs were on the leg side. We were playing a game against India in the second season. Uh, that I played South Australia um, and we were in the visitors dressing room at Adelaide Oval because it's a smaller dressing room so they gave the bigger dressing room to the visiting team and the South Australian team was shunted into the smaller visitors room and so Donald used it was a selector he was chairman of South Australian cricket as well as chairman of Australian cricket and a selector for Australia as well but he used to come into our dressing room the South Australian dressing room every morning of the home game, and he'd have a cup of tea with Les Travel. Yeah. Um, just talk 
whatever they talked about. Um, rarely did Sir Donald stop and talk to the players. Occasionally, if there was a, a, a test cricketer in, in the room, you know, like a Barry Jarman or Neil Hawke or Eric Freeman or someone like that, he might stop and have a, have a quick word with one of them, but rarely did he talk to the younger blokes. Well, not only not rarely, never. So <laughs> he, um, he was in the dressing room this morning and the, the sort of entrance and exit for this visitor's dressing room is quite narrow and I just happened to be near the exit just accidentally and I think there must have been some bats in the dressing room for autographing and I must have picked up one of these bats and I was shadow batting. Yeah. Uh, just just near the you know, the entrance and exit to the dressing room and so Donald started to leave and I don't know what made me do it but as he virtually walked past me and he, he wasn't speaking, he wasn't stopping but for some reason or other I said good morning to Donald and he stopped and he, and he said good morning Greg and he turned and started to go and he said by the way, he stopped and came back he said by the way I'd change that grip if I were you and I said what would you suggest and he said I'd suggest the grip that I used worked pretty well. <laughs> and I said, what was your grip? And he said, oh, you can read about it in my book, The Art of Cricket. And I said, well, I've got a copy of your book at home, but you're here. And I shoved the bat into his stomach pretty much and forced <laughs> him to take it. And he showed me his very neutral grip, which was, you know, his thumb and forefinger on both hands down, you know, the, the V between the thumb and forefinger straight down the spine of the bat. Um, so... Yeah, you know, I, I picked the bat up and sort of tried it. He said, look, you haven't done it before. It'll probably feel uncomfortable, but I would suggest that you persevere with it because it will improve your ability to score runs on the offside. So with that, he turned and, and he started to walk out of the dressing room and he stopped and he turned back and he said, by the way, he said, I've given this piece of advice to one other player he didn't take it, and he's no longer in the team. And then he turned and walked away. <laughs> so we were batting that day. I was batting at five, I think. So we had a bit of time. I, I grabbed um, Jeff Hammond and, and Terry Jenner, a couple of our bowlers, and said, look, do you mind just coming back down to the net? I want to try something. So they came down and bowled to me for 15 minutes or so, and uh, it felt quite comfortable. I, I didn't have any trouble making the adjustment. I used the grip that that day when I batted and I used it for the rest of my career and there's no doubt that uh, it, it was the best piece of advice I got as an adult getter and um, he may have regretted it because I reckon I might not have got past his tally of runs if he hadn't changed the grip. <laughs> a little, a little acknowledgement to Sir Don uh, when, when you go past the, the 7,000 runs. Yeah, I was... Uh, it was a milestone. It wasn't a record by any means. I mean, he got his runs in a lot less uh, innings than, than I played. Uh, his record is uh, phenomenal. Yeah. Um, it's hard to imagine that somebody you know, could make that many runs as, as quickly as he did. Um, going as few innings as he as he did and that basically he was one boundary away from averaging 100 test triggers. Quite yeah. remarkable. Incredible. Incredible. Now, um, a little bit later on... Um you, you, you've played first-class cricket for a little while. You're playing down in Tasmania against a World Eleven, and your father sends you a, a letter in the mail. You've been scoring lots of 20s and 30s, hitting the ball really well, um, but not going on and making lots of big scores. And can you tell us about um, this letter that your dad sent and 
and the realizations, the the light bulb moment that happened for you um, after reflecting on that. Yeah, I'd um, been. Yeah, I'd made a lot of runs for for South Australia. Um, I was uh, batting quite well, I thought, but you know, I was getting, as you say, getting twenties and thirties and not converting them into uh, into big scores. And I had already played a few Test matches the previous summer. I'd, I'd made a hundred on debut against England. Uh, played another three or four Test matches that series without any. Great distinction. I think I got a 60-odd in the last test match in, in Sydney. At next season, um, we were playing against the rest of the world. The South Africans had been banned by that stage, so they'd hurriedly you know, picked a rest of the world team to tour, and I'd been 12th man in the first two test matches against the rest of the world. Um, Ian and I were down in Hobart to play in a game for an Australian 11 against the touring rest of the world. So this was before Tasmania were in the Sheffield Shield. So it was basically nine Tasmanians and Ian and I played in this um, Australian 11 side. And I'd already batted twice in the game. And again, I think I'd got, you know, a 20 and a 30. And, you know, I felt as though I was hitting the ball pretty well. Um, we were, we'd planned to go out for dinner. Ian and I uh, were staying at Padley's Hotel in the middle of Hobart. Uh, the rest of the Tasmanian boys were, you know, staying at home. So just the two of us, and we were meeting up with um, Intercar Balam and Gary Sobers and a couple of the um, rest of the world guys for, for dinner. And um, I was waiting downstairs for Ian to come down, and the concierge um, came over to me and he handed me an envelope and said, oh, Mr. Chapel, there's a letter for you. And I recognised from the handwriting that it was from our father. So I opened the, the envelope and inside the envelope was a cutting of an article from the Adelaide Advertiser. A fellow called Keith Butler was the cricket writer at the time and Keith had given me a fair spray. He basically said I was wasting my talent and if I didn't pull my finger out, not only wouldn't I be in the Australian team by the end of the summer, but I, I wouldn't get selected for the, the Tour of England the next year. And Dad had just written a little note, a message on the bottom of this article. He just said, look, I don't believe everything that Keith has to say, but it might be worth thinking about. Mm. It was a brilliant bit of coaching because if he'd, you know, if he'd said it to me directly, I would have probably shut my ears and walked away and taken no notice of it. But yeah. the fact that he'd used someone else's words and just that short note, just think about it. Well, by the time Ian came down, I said to him, mate, I'm not hungry. You go out. I'm going to stay in. So I went back to my room. I sat in the in a comfortable chair in the corner of the room in the dark for the next few hours, and I thought about it. And I thought about every game I'd ever played, from the backyard test matches to school cricket, um, club cricket, shield cricket, test cricket. And what I realised was that 99 times out of 100, I had got myself out. It had been a mental error that had brought about my dismissal, not necessarily good bowling by the opposition. Possibly contributed to by some good bowling and some good fielding, but in the end, it was my mistake that brought about my dismissal. So um, the other thing that I realised from this session was that that was never going to change. Mm. It was always going to be me making a mistake that was going to bring about my dismissal. But if I could delay the inevitable, I had to make more runs. Yeah. So I started then to think about, well, what 
was I thinking about? You know, when I batted, on a good day, on a bad day, when I got out, what was I thinking about? And I realised that on the good days, I wasn't thinking about much at all. I was just seeing the ball and, and responding to what was being bowled. On the bad days, I was usually either, you know, um, a bit anxious or um, generally I was thinking ahead too much. You know, I was starting to predict what the bowler was going to bowl and that was when mistakes came. Yeah. So the, the real epiphany for me was that it wasn't my physical ability that was going to define my career. It was going to be my mental ability and my concentration. And again, in that session, what I realized was that I did have a process that I used on occasion. And, and, you know, on the good occasions, I used it more than I did on the bad occasions. So I realized that that was what I had to get good at. I'd, I'd been to a, um, I was working for the Coca-Cola Bottlers in Adelaide at, at that stage in a management trainee course, and they'd sent us off on different personal development things. And I'd heard this fellow speak. I don't remember who he was or where, what his background was, but he talked about because to be successful at something, you need to work out what the key components of that exercise is and get good at them. Yeah. And that night, sitting in the, the room at the Hadley's Hotel, I realised that that's what I had to get good at. I had to get good at my mental processes to make sure that I was concentrating and focus where I needed to be focused at that at the right time. So concentration is nothing more than being focused on what's important at that moment. Yeah. And what was important as a batsman was to see the ball leave the bowler's hand. So I had to make sure that I engaged with the bowler at the top of his run-up and see the ball leave his hand. That was what I had to get good at. And therefore, I had to have a mental process that made sure that by the time the bowler got through the top of his mark, I was engaged with him. But once the play was finished, I had to relax mentally momentarily, and it could only might only be a couple of seconds if it was a spin bowler. Yeah. But for me, I had to disengage with the last ball, have a moment of relaxation mentally, and then re-engage for the next one. And that realization was the turning point in in my career for some reason or other even though i'd only made 20s and 30s in that game in in hobart the selectors picked me in the next test match in melbourne the next week and you know the two or three days leading up to that test match all i did was practice my mental routine when i went to the net i i wasn't worried about how many cover drives i played or cut shots or on drives anything else all I wanted to do was get good at my routine. And I went out and I got 100 in the Melbourne Test match in the second innings. Yep. And then we went straight to, to Sydney for the, the New Year Test match and I got 180 odd, I think, I think 90, 196 not out. I got against um, the rest of the world in uh, in Sydney and that, that was the turning point because it, it just reinforced to me that that's what I had to practice and that's what I had to get good at. And interestingly enough, you know, the better I, I got at that, the better I hit the ball anyway because I was seeing the ball leave the hand. Yes. I have no doubt that I've, I've played with guys and against guys and I've coached guys that don't see the ball leave the bowler's hand. You know, they're looking in that general direction. Yeah. 
but their their field of focus is the size of the sight screen, whereas my field of focus was the size of a cricket ball in the bowler's hand. Yeah, and, wow. Yeah, that was where all the information came from. As it left the hand, you got the angles, you got the line, you got the length. Um, you know, whether it was an outswinger, inswinger, slower ball, you picked all that information up. And it was too late to pick it up halfway down. And, and I know in the period that I struggled, I wasn't seeing the ball come out of the bowler's hand. For some reason or other, I was distracted. And I was picking the ball up halfway down, and that's too late. You haven't yeah. got time to react. You haven't got all the information to react on. And, you know, I think that was that note that Dad sent was the defining moment in my cricket career. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, wanted to highlight just one of the games where you and Ian did really well together a test match against New Zealand 1974. Uh, you and Ian both make hundreds in each innings. You make your highest test match score, 247 not out. What did it mean to you? Uh, I've heard you say your older brother's a bit of a hero for you. What What did it mean for you to have on-field success for Australia with one of your brothers? Yeah, you know, we'd grown up with a five-year age gap, obviously, so we never played any junior cricket together. Ian was always a step ahead of me. Uh, so by the time I got to primary school, he'd left and gone to secondary school and so on. So the only time we'd played cricket together was in the backyard and we were opponents. We'd played against each other and they were pretty willing test matches and him being the older and, and stronger brother, you know, he was um, he was a bit better than me in the backyard and I learned to lose for a few years <laughs> playing against him in, in the backyard. Thankfully, and, and the other disappointing feature of that was that not many people realise that my first test matches were for England because our test matches were always <laughs> Ashes Ashes series and Ian as the older brother was Australia and, and I had to be England. So I learned to lose for a few years and then Ian left home and I became Australia and Trevor became England and then I learned to win. Yeah. So, you know, it was, uh, it was a, I don't know where Trevor got his win from, but, um, you know, I was lucky being the middle brother, I got to learn to lose and then I got to learn to win. But so when we started playing against each or playing with each other as adults, we struggled because we weren't used to seeing each other on the same side. And yeah, you know, we had a few mix ups running between wickets. Ian invariably got run out. Um, I, I always said to him that you know the, the sign of a good runner was a bloke who was safe. So uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, get. Uh, had to start running a bit faster or, or reacting a bit quicker or something. But so it took us a little while, and you know, probably the turning point was um, you know a few years before the game in New Zealand. We we got a hundred each in in the last Test match in England at the Oval in '72, and that you know was the first really big partnership we had. Yeah, and and that was a you know was obviously a great thrill. Mum and Dad were there to see it. Trevor was in England playing cricket, and he was at the Oval that day as well. So it was a, a big family affair, but the, the one in New Zealand uh, a couple of um, years later was um, obviously a, a big moment. We both got hundreds in each innings. Um, I was filthy with Ian that he declared in the, the first innings. I was 247 yeah. not out, and I reckon I had 300 in, in my sight. Yeah. It was a pretty good wicket. Um, but Ian decided he was going to declare. I, I argued with him, and, uh, which we often did. Um, 
still do, but that's, um, you know, he said, maybe we've got to win the test match. I said, no one's winning this test match. This week it's too good. Um, you might as well uh, let me get my 300 and then we'll see if we can bowl him out. But no, he decided he wanted to uh, uh, bowl New Zealand out, which we didn't do. We didn't win the game and, and you know, we batted again. It just shows you how good the wicket was because um, we both got hundreds in the, the second innings as well. So, um, in in my mind, um, I've always thought that my highest score was 380 because I got 247 not out in the first innings and then carried on and got 133 in the second innings. So, <laughs> uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, that's all one inning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very good. Now, uh, the era that you played cricket, you mentioned just before working for Coca-Cola, you, you also worked in insurance. Um, mm-hmm. h- how did you navigate... Um, playing cricket, being married, having children, um, tying it all in together in that sort of pre-professional era of the game? Yeah, it was a different world, obviously. I mean, I I took off to England as a 19-year-old. I, I was lucky that um, to play county cricket prior to 1968, you had to uh, qualify by um, residence. So, it had been seven years, and then it was reduced to two years. And I was never going to go and qualify by residence because it would have meant missing at least one, maybe two domestic seasons at home, and I wasn't prepared to do that. So I was negotiating to play some second eleven cricket with Leicestershire when um, the the new law came in that they could have one overseas player, and John Imbrarity had been selected by Somerset as their overseas uh, player for that season. He was subsequently picked up, to play, uh, you know, selected to play for Australia, go on the tour of England in '68. So, Somerset were left without an overseas player. So, being young and naive, I, I, I sent them a telegram, which you did in those days. No mobile phones, no uh, text messages. It was either uh, snail mail or telegram. So, I sent them a telegram and said, "Look, you know, I noticed you haven't got a overseas player. I'm interested. I'll, you know, letter following." That was sent on the Friday. On the Sunday night, my father said to me, have you written a letter to Somerset yet? And I said, oh, look, I'm kidding myself. I'm 19 years of age. You know, they're not going to be interested in me. Um, he said, well, you said you'd send a letter, so you'd better send it. So I, I wrote the letter and sent it off. And about 10 days later, the phone rings at home. Mum answers the phone and said, there's a fellow from Somerset oh, wow. club on, the, on the phone. It was the secretary, a fellow called Dickie Robinson. He, he said, Greg, we got your letter. We're very interested. You know, when can you come? And I felt like, hey, what about tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> at that stage, I was working for the Shell Oil Company, and um, you know, I, that was my first job out of school. I, um, I didn't sort of see myself having a career at the Shell Oil Company over the long, long term. So I thought, well, you know, playing professional cricket, getting paid to play cricket six days a week as it was at that stage. Sounds like a pretty good idea to me. So I took off to Somerset and, you know, midway through, the first season was brilliant. I just loved it. Um, great learning experience, just life learning experience as well as cricket. But midway through the second season, I realised that that wasn't the life that I wanted. You know, I didn't see myself as a professional cricketer full time. I wanted to play for Australia, and to play for Australia, I had to make runs in Australia. Yeah. So I, I rang my dad and said, listen, you know, this was about, uh, I would have been 
July, June, July, you know, 69, I was halfway through the second season. And I said to Dad, look, I'm done here. You know, this will be my last season. I'll be back in September. Can you keep an eye out for a real job? Because, you know, this is not what I want to do for a living. So I started reading. You know, I, I wanted to understand, you know, how I could combine the two, figure it and work, because that's what I was going to have to do if I, if I was to play for Australia. So what I learned from the reading of, you know, books about successful people, you know, self-made men, you know, basically had made money in real estate or insurance, life insurance particularly. Yeah. So I thought, well, that's what I need to do. I need to get into a commission job where I can work hard enough in the winter to earn enough in six months to last me 12 months. So I could take the, the summer off and play cricket. And when I came back, as luck would have it, mum played tennis with a, with a woman whose husband was the sales manager at A&P Life Insurance Society. And uh, I went and had a job interview and, and started work about a month after I got home. And, you know, that's basically what I did for the rest of my career. I worked and, and played cricket. And, you know, it was challenging because, uh, you know, we basically survived the majority of our test careers on two practice sessions a week. Tuesday afternoon, Thursday afternoon, you'd have a net for about 12 minutes, maybe 15 minutes if you were lucky. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you had to, you know, you had to get better in those sessions. And that's where that mental stuff was, was pretty important to me because, I wasn't restricted on how many nets I could have in a week because I, you know, what I would do every day, usually at night before I went to bed, was spend 10, 15, 20 minutes just imagining myself play well. Yeah. And, and seeing myself and feeling myself bat the way I wanted to bat. And you know, what I learned from stuff that I've read subsequently is that that mental rehearsal is is as good as a physical, in fact, probably better than a physical session because it's, it's the only place that you can have a, a perfect training session. And those mental rehearsals, those mental you know, practice sessions were, I think, instrumental in, in helping me manage the requirements of playing cricket as a pastime, uh, working for a living, you know, having a family, Luckily, when I moved to Queensland, you know, I got into business with business partners and, um, you know, they were able to manage the business while I was away, which, you know, gave me the, the time and the space and the income to be able to afford to play cricket internationally for 14 years. You know, I wouldn't have lasted that long uh, without the support, A, of my wife and, uh, you know, her four parents in basically being a single mother for three young kids for many, many years. And um, my business partners who had to man the uh, the office while I was off gallivanting around the world playing cricket. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Amazing um, to have that support. And uh, it sounds like Judy's been a big supporter of, of your career for all the way through. Yeah, very much so. Um, I, I couldn't have done it without her support and I mean you know I knew the day I met her I knew she was the one um, I wasn't sure she was convinced of that at the, at the time but um, <laughs> thankfully she she came around over time and um, you know I've been lucky with that support you know she's um, 
you know, she she didn't come from a cricket background. She uh, she grew up in Sydney. I grew up in Adelaide, so we we met in in Sydney. Um, she had no idea what she was getting herself into, mind you. Neither, nor did I, in the sense of you know I didn't expect um, to have a cricket career that that went for the you know first class career for twenty years and an international career for fourteen years. Um, I had no idea what um, was ahead of us. And she certainly had no idea. And um, you know, there there have been times when it's been a, a huge, huge challenge for her. And you know, uh, when we moved to Brisbane, she had no family support. Not not my family, not her family. Uh, luckily, we had some good friends who who were very helpful. But it's not the same as having uh, family around. So she brought three kids kids up on her own for the you know the first ten years of uh, our eldest son's life. Um, so, you know, she's had to adapt along along the way, and um, you know, she's she's got very good at it, very self sufficient, very strong individual. Um, didn't put up from with too much shit from me, I can tell you over the, <laughs> the years. Um, she's educated me along the along the way as well, and uh, we're still together nearly fifty years down the track. So, uh, it's it's been the most successful partnership that uh, that I've had through my life, I can tell you. Uh, and just on Judy, she embraced coming to India with you. Um, what what was your reflections on your time coaching in India and um, what, what did you learn from, from that experience? Yeah, it was a great experience. I, you know, I, I had no ambition to get into coaching. I, it sort of happened accidentally. I got an invitation to... Uh, Go back to South Australia and, and um, you know coach at the first class level, which was a great experience. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I could. Um, I uh, by the end of it, in the five years I had in, in South Australia, I was uh, you know I, I thought I'd love to, to coach uh, internationally, and at that stage it was unlikely to be Australia because John Buchanan was coaching. Yep. South Australia, uh, sorry, Australia successfully. And um, so, uh, you know, I have had a couple of approaches. The West Indies and Sri Lanka had approached me. But um, in the meantime, I'd, I'd had a phone call from Saurabh Ganguly, who was captain of India at the time, and Saurabh was struggling with his batting. And I was living in Sydney. He um, wanted to come out and, and do some work with me. So he came out and we spent 10 days in Sydney working on his batting. We got to know each other quite well. And, um, you know, he sort of spoken to me about, you know, whether I was interested in, in doing the uh, the Indian job. And I said, yes, I, well, I was interested. Um, and so once he'd sort of expressed some um, hope that, you know, that was, was a possibility. Once I'd been approached by the West Indies and the Sri Lankans, I sort of I put them on hold a bit because uh, I thought if I was going to coach at the international level, if it couldn't be Australia, then India was the the place because it was the you know, power centre of cricket, had probably one of the best batting lineups that the world's ever seen, mm. and it would be good to uh, to work with, with some of those guys. So um, the job came up. I you know uh, went. For an um, interview, uh, I think there were um, uh, there were about four others that applied for the the job. Um, I had to go through an interview process, and at the end of which I was um, offered the the job. 
with the Indian team, which was uh, was a great thrill. You know, Judy had always been interested in living overseas. Did encourage me, you know, to you know, get a job. She's got a Scottish Scottish heritage. She yep. always thought I'd coach the the Scottish team. <laughs> um, it wasn't probably on the top of my priority list, so I rang her one day and said, um, "You've always wanted to live overseas. What about India?" And she said, "Oh, absolutely. I'd be in that." So she really embraced it. We went to uh, Bangalore and set up a you know, base in Bangalore for the first few months. Um, so once she realised that I was never going to be in Bangalore, we we uh, gave up and we uh, we used Mumbai as a base. Um, and Judy, uh, you know, travelled with with us when we we toured in you know Pakistan in particular, and that was an amazing experience. You know, getting to travel to parts of the world and not least of all Pakistan as uh, part of the Indian cricket team was quite a, an amazing experience. Uh, I'd likened it to travelling with the Beatles. Yeah, wow. Everywhere you went, there was a big crowd at the airport along the, the streets were always lined, people waving flags and whatever, whatever the Indian team came to town. So um, it was a, it was a huge experience. Um the downside of it was that uh, sadly the other relationship with with Sarah um, soured early on. He wasn't making a lot of runs. He um, wasn't really buying into the um, the commitment to excellence that that I had presented to the BCCI, and they'd given me the job on the basis that I was, you know, introduced some of the success processes that, uh, you know, Australian cricket has enjoyed through the years and, um, you know, we we were doing that. Um, Harold got dropped from the, the team and for the next 12 months we had a bit of clear air and had quite a lot of success. We really um, revamped the way they played one-day cricket. You know, I learned pretty early on with them that they over-attacked with the bat and they under-attacked with the ball, so we had to get them to rejig the balance there a little bit, be a little bit more conservative with the baton, but a little bit more aggressive with the ball. Because if you don't take wickets early in one-day games, particularly in India on those wickets, you get killed at the back end. So uh, yeah. we had to rejig the the team. You know, we changed the way they trained. You know, they had to train a lot more with a lot more purpose. They really just went through the motions um, prior to, uh, to my arrival and, uh, you know, relied very heavily on natural ability, which they had plenty of, but, you know, it, it wasn't a sustainable model. So we had to get them to train a bit better, be fitter, feel better. And to be fair, you know, the majority of the players, um, you know, bought into it. We started introducing a few younger players into the into the mix to get the balance right because this was an ageing team. Yep. And they were all going to come to the end together. You know, the batting lineup in particular was going to come to the end together. But even the bowlers, you know, we had some talented bowlers, but they weren't fit enough. Um, you know, they'd bowl one good spell and then they'd struggle. After that, um, the balance of teams, it was okay in India to have a spin-heavy attack, but when you went to Australia or England or South Africa or the West Indies, you needed pace bowling. So we, you know, we changed their thought processes around. You know, you've got to prioritise fast bowling. You've yeah. got to have some bench bench strength. You know, you can't just pick two or three. You've got to have half a dozen because blokes are going to break down. Uh, you need to rest them from time to time because, you know, the Indian team was on the road for 10 months of the year. So it was a pretty grinding and, and grueling uh, 
schedule and, um, you know, but really challenging. I really enjoyed working with Rahul Dravid when he became captain. You know, MS Tony was a young player in, in the team at that stage. Um, an outstanding individual, wonderful talent, but, you know, a terrifically balanced individual, a born leader. Uh, he was obviously going to be a captain of, of, of the future. But I was sort of there at the tr- in the transition period, and uh, you know we had to do a lot of things that um, uh, you know challenge the system, challenge the individuals, um, and in in the end, you know once Sarah was sort of forced back into the into the team for external reasons, you know it became fairly apparent that uh, you know I wasn't going to be able to be there long enough. I, you know I, the two years that I did there was probably as grueling a two years as I've done anywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally, all of those things, just being in that role, being involved in cricket in India with that on under that spotlight was um fairly challenging and um you know, I, I thought that uh you know, whilst I enjoyed it enormously, it wasn't worth damaging my health to um you know, to, to try and see the job through. So even though they they offered me an extension to the contract, I declined and uh, left after the the World Cup in two thousand and seven. Spent another eighteen months coaching in India and in Rajasthan. Um, uh, Ian Fraser, a, a friend of mine, who I took to India with me as the assistant coach, he and I set up the um, the academy for Rajasthan cricket and ran their academy and worked with their next generation of players and. I've got to say that 18 months was probably more rewarding in some ways than the two years with the, the Indian team, not least of all because we lived in, in Jaipur um, and we actually lived in India, whereas working with the Indian team, you know, we hovered over India, but we didn't really live in it. Yeah. Um, so that to, to experience that on top of the time with the Indian team was just amazing and, you know, we've got such happy memories. We've got some good friendships. Um, and, you know, I think the majority of, um, you know, the Indian cricket supporters realised what we were doing and um, and that what we did in those two years actually set them up for the success that they've had subsequently. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Greg, we're, we've run out of time, but uh, just before we go, just wanted to quickly touch on your work with the Chapel Foundation, um, give you a chance to, to say a couple of words about that um, but before we go. Yeah, look, I, you know, I've been involved in charities for 50 years, um, starting back with the um, Spastic Centre in, in Adelaide years ago. Um, and uh, that sort of opened my eyes up to the fact that, um, you know, there were there were people out there that weren't as, um, as lucky as I was. Uh, and I think that's something that our, you know, our parents sort of taught us early on that, you know, we had a responsibility to look out for others as well, um, particularly those who weren't as fortunate as we were. So over the years, um, starting, as I say, back in, in Adelaide, I came to Brisbane in the early 70s. Um, <clears throat> I got involved with the Royal Children's Hospital Foundation here, Leukemia Foundation in, in Brisbane for many years, uh, Leukemia Foundation back in South Australia when I went back there, and then I helped set up the Leukemia Foundation in, in Sydney, um, when I moved to Sydney after after Adelaide, I spent um, well. I've been 
15 years an ambassador for the LBW Trust, which is um, a cricket-based charity, LBW, standing for Learning for a Better World, um, started by Peter Roebuck and um, Michael Coward, um, a cricket uh, journalist of high repute. Um, They um, set up the LBW Trust to raise money in Australia to support uh, tertiary education in you know, for underprivileged um, youth in cricket-playing countries around the world. Um, we support thousands of, of young people in countries like India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, uh, South Africa, Zimbabwe, um, you know, to help their Afghanistan, to, to help them um, with, with their tertiary education. Um, in that uh, time at uh, LBW Trust, I met a fellow called, well, I, I knew Darshak made it before then, but he was chairman of the LBW Trust. Darshak was born in India, but has lived in Sydney for 30 odd years. And when he stood down as chairman after 10 years with the LBW Trust, he had a bit of a break for a while. And one day he said to me, We've got to do something in the chapel name. And I said, No, I'm not sure we do. Um, I'm happy sort of doing what I do. And he said, No, 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 we've got to do something in. Uh, uh, in the chapel name so uh, I thought about it you know he sort of came up with a few uh, thoughts about who we could support but most of those sort of um, charities were well supported by government and other areas I I wanted it firstly it had to be in Australia secondly it had to be about young people and and Judy and I had been living in Melbourne I was working with Trigger Australia in Melbourne for three and a half years and we lived in East Melbourne with the Fitzroy Gardens as our front uh, front garden and I used to go into the Fitzroy Gardens every morning for exercise and you know, I noticed that there were a lot of people who slept up mm. in the Fitzroy Gardens so it came to me that um, that was what we, we should support. So youth homelessness and uh, at-risk youth is what we support, the Chapel Foundation. We're not a charity in that we don't do the um, front front of line stuff. We we raise money, we raise awareness through functions. Um, and in over the four years that the foundation's been going, we've raised the uh, best part of four million dollars, which That's we standard. use to support seven charities who do real good work on the front line. For youth homelessness and at-risk youth, um, they're all East Coast-based charities. One in in Brisbane, one in Canberra, and the others are in Sydney. So services ranging for halfway houses, um, you know, other support uh, services, you know, for mental health and so on. One thing I've learned, um, I was appalled to find out that there are in excess of 110,000 people homeless in Australia, mm. 40% of which are under the age of 25 and, and many of them are young women and that's a growing demographic and, and one that is just unacceptable in Australia. Yeah. You know, a country with our wealth, the fact that we've got 110,000 or more people without a place to call home is is just unacceptable and, and you know, you've only got to spend one night on the street to realise how bad that is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, no one chooses to be homeless. It happens for you, and we're all one bad marriage or one bad, you know, get uh, get back from a job, and yeah. you know, you all of a sudden could find yourself without a place to call home. A lot of kids 
um, you know, couch surf at friends' homes. Um, they're not all sleeping rough, but, um, you know, the demographic is growing. COVID hasn't helped things. Um, you know, the, the charities that we support are telling us that they are under demand more than ever before. Yeah. And, you know, we're, you know, I, when we started this, I thought if we could, if we could turn one kid's life around, it'd be worthwhile. Well, thankfully, we're turning hundreds of kids' lives around and, and it, it's highly rewarding. Uh, we, you know, we go and see some of these kids. We, we have them come to our, our functions and they get up and they speak and tell you their life story. It is heartrending mm. to hear where some of these kids have come from. They start from so far back. Um, so to be able to, um, to help some of them get their lives back together and to hear the stories of, you know, how they've got their lives back together thanks to the services that we're able to, to support, makes it all worthwhile. So any of your listeners want to help, um, www.applefoundation.com.au. Um, they can help by donating some money because I can promise you we're a um, 100% volunteer charity. We don't have any overhead. We don't have an office. We don't have any staff. It's all volunteers. Mm. So virtually every dollar that that we raise goes to um, helping these kids who've really had a bad start to life. Oh, that's tremendous, Greg. And, yeah, I do encourage our listeners to get behind that. I'll put the details in, in the show notes. It's been an absolute thrill for me to chat with you, Greg, and re- really thoroughly appreciate you taking the time to share some of your insights on the success that you had throughout your career and, and share uh, some of the work you've been doing with the Chapel Foundation. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the Cricket Library podcast. Cheers, Matt. All the best with your podcast. A massive thanks to Greg Chappell for joining us on this edition of the Cricket Library podcast. That was a massive thrill for me and I trust a thrill for you, the listener as well, getting those wonderful insights from Greg into his playing career and particularly the mental preparation uh, that he undertook to be so successful at that level and, and the way he was able to analyse his own performances and, and, and find those key indicators to success and make himself the successful batsman that he was, the successful leader that he was for Australia for so many years in the wonderful game of cricket. And so good to hear about the continued work he's doing through the Chapel Foundation and helping so many homeless young people in the country to have better prospects for their life and and would strongly encourage you to support the Chapel Foundation if you're able to head to thechapelfoundation.com and donate there and we'll put that information in the show notes as well for you so you can track that down nice and easily. Well, that's the end of this season. Uh, We've we've finished on on a massive high with Greg Chapel there. From the weeks coming forward, it'll be the Cricket Library Weekly with myself and Robbie McKinlay. Looking forward to bringing you the latest from cricket around Australia and beyond. Please make sure you subscribe. Please make sure you leave a rating and review and tell your friends about the Cricket Library podcast. This has been Matt Ellis. Bye for now.